Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. In part one of A Critique of Gender Dysphoria in DSM-5, Dr. Furton explained why the American Psychological Association replaced gender identity disorder with gender dysphoria in its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. In part two, he more fully addresses the ideology behind transgenderism. He then discusses specific treatments for gender dysphoria and the general challenges of providing medical care to people who claim to be transgender. He concludes by offering a Catholic response to this problematic interpretation of gender identity. Ted, for many people, uh, transgender issues was what you might call the next logical step after we as a society recognize so-called marriage equality for same-sex couples. Now, although uh, DSM-5 came out before the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, do you think that efforts leading up to the court's redefinition of marriage had anything to do with this revision? Well, I don't know if it had anything to do with the revision, but I think it's part of a larger, you know, the larger problem that that we have. You know, there is another case of where the the natural biological facts meant nothing to uh, the intellectual elites who decided the question. And I put it that way because, of course, it was a Supreme Court decision. It wasn't decided by the people at large. In fact, the people of the United States, I guess there was 25 to 30 states that had voted that marriage should be one man and one woman, some of them going through the very difficult process of amending the state constitutions. And uh, so even in California, they lost. Right. I mean, the activists lost. Right. And having lost it all, the activists said, well, we're not going to stand for for the American people deciding this issue. We'll go to the Supreme Court and and the intellectual elites will will change everything. And it really was devastating, really, not only on the moral issue, but for for the idea of of self-governance. But in any case, the the point I wanted to make is that it is very obvious that men and women are suited to each other in the natural order. Uh, the, the, not only physiologically for sexual union, but also emotionally and intellectually. We are opposites and we are made for each other. I mean, even if you, if you set aside the whole theological context for that, and you just look at the human race from a purely natural perspective, and yet when the proponents of uh, traditional marriage uh, you know, were spe- would speak about this, the opposite side would say, well, no, we don't agree with that argument. That's got nothing to do with this because, you know, marriage is just a kind of a projection, again, of the mind. It's, it's what we decide it is. And if we, if we just want to love, you know, someone of the same sex, that's all that marriage really is. It has nothing to do with procreation and, you know, the upbringing of children, which is so contrary to fact and so obviously wrong that, uh, you know, people like you and I, we just said, well, you know, that, that's our argument. And they said, we don't agree with it. What else you got? We said, well, that's it. And, and that was the end. I mean, they just said, we would reject that. And we have the power on our side, the Supreme Court. And so you lose. How long do you think it's going to take our society to recover from this, both from the, the marriage issue and from now from the, from the gender fluidity issue? 
Well, one of the things you see in the in the culture, it's not very prominent right now, but uh, people who are, say, young people who are encouraged by psychiatrists and their parents to undergo sex change operations at the, you know, in their teens or whatever, mm-hmm. they're going to come on the scene later on and said, hey, this is a terrible thing that happened to me. And I'm very angry you did this to me. Um, there, so people are the ones who are hurt by this, I think, are going to be making their voices known in the future. It's unfortunate that this has to happen to them. Um, and then, of course, people have to listen as well. So I don't know, Joe, it could take a long time. Another area where this is happening um, more prominently is uh, per, people who have been produced by way of anonymous donors, uh, sperm donors and the like. There are a lot of young people who are you know, coming of age now who are saying, you know, I don't know who I am. I was produced by my mother and some anonymous donor, and I don't like this. It's not good for me. And the activists are all saying, well, no, you just have to keep quiet because you don't understand the, what we're pushing here, what we're going for. <laughs> but, you know, they were affected by it. It's, it's hurt them. And so the people who are hurt and their supporters are the ones who are going to have to speak up. Yeah, I was I was going to push you on that a little bit because uh, from what I've experienced, those who do raise those questions, those children who were the, you know, the product of an insemination, or even people today who uh, have had the the so called sex change operations, and now they're coming out x number of years later, and they're saying, you know, we this wasn't a good thing, they're not being listened to. So, and, right. You know, so there's another hurdle to to overcome in all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's the ideological push um, here that just closes itself off to the voice of reason. I mean, again, it's a very deep-rooted problem right. in the humanities. Reason has pretty much been cast aside in favor of more mm, impulsive and subjective standards. And so long as that's allowed to dominate and, and has the force that it does, it's pretty hard to counteract this, uh, this these kind of things. That would be much, be a great deal of help if the, if the judiciary was not siding with activists and was simply, you know, following the, the Constitution and the will of the people in these matters. Because the people generally, you know, most people, you're, you know, Janes and Joes of the world. Your, your average people, they don't buy into this. Uh, they're bullied into it. They feel right. that they have to go along, but they, yep. they recognize through common sense that this doesn't really make uh, a lot of sense. Yeah. So there's a lot of hope in that as well. And I think you do make a really good point that a lot of these issues, whether it's the mar- marriage issue, whether it's the gender issue, they are being, people are being bullied into accepting these, you know, into accepting these ideologies. No question about it. No question about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a very important. You know, the, the Catholic Church is uh, is a rock, and uh, it's it's it can be bullied, but it's not going to change. Its its teachings are there, and that's one of the great things about it. And it really, in times like this, it, it represents the the best of Western civilization, and uh, you know, the heritage of the West, when everything else is under attack, <laughs> and people want to throw off the past. I mean, the, the church holds on to it and says we need to continue to listen to reason. It's a very odd thing because yeah. the church dedicated to the faith is in the position today of defending reason, uh, which is really the foundation of, of the faith. Uh, faith is added to reason. So it's just as important for the church, even more so than it is perhaps for the wider public. Yeah, 
Yeah, what you say is what keeps me Catholic, or one of the things that keeps mm. me Catholic. Let's put it. I'd like to change yeah. gears a little bit. Um, I'd like to discuss treatments for gender dysphoria. Uh, can you tell us what are the actual treatments? And I use that term very lightly, but what are the treatments for gender gender dysphoria? Yeah, well, um, according to the uh, DSM five, the treatment is uh, for men to take uh, female hormones to suppress their male uh, sex characteristics and ultimately to undergo uh, surgical removal of their sex organs, uh, removal of the Adam's apple, uh, you know, anything that, that'll make you look like a woman. Uh, it's a, again, I think it's properly described as a mutilating procedure, which in Catholic teaching and in natural law teaching is always immoral. You can't simply destroy your own physical body that nature has given you, God has given you. So these are treatments, so-called, but really uh, they're very damaging. Uh, again, you go back to DSM-4, the treatment would be, okay, you think you're a woman, but what you really need to understand here is that when you look in the mirror, you are a man. And I'm, I'm here as a psychiatrist to to encourage you to accept your bodily identity as it's given to you in nature and to help help you overcome this delusion from which you are suffering. That's the old treatment, not the new one. Hmm. So I just want to I just want to emphasize this because I know we talked about it earlier. So with DSM-5, what's actually being treated is not the disorder but really a symptom. Or, or a result of yes, the disorder. Yes, that's right. Okay. That's right. And I said they were, the DSM-5 is a little cagey about this. So they, they, uh, the authors don't recommend that people undergo these exchange procedures for those who have only mild cases of gender dysphoria. It's only when the anxiety that the individual suffers reaches a certain level that they say, okay, this person feels so disordered that in order to make him feel better, you need to, you know, provide the hormones and the surgery because that will make him feel better about himself. He'll, he'll feel more comfortable in his body and he believes he will be more readily accepted by society at large. And the other thing here is it, it, it's, there's this talk of assigned gender. So the, DSM-5 seems to buy into this notion that when you are born and the doctor sees that you are male or female physically, he doesn't describe your gender, your sex. He assigns it to you as if he could just pick one or two, you know, one or the other, and it was an arbitrary designation. So DSM-5 says the individual is just setting aside the gender that he was assigned at birth and giving expression to his real sex, which is the opposite of what he appears to be. Wait a minute. Let me, let me, let me ask you this. Doesn't a doctor, when a child is born, doesn't a doctor quote unquote assign a sex based on an observation, number one, of the child's genitalia? Yeah. So how is yeah, that I mean, this assigned? is the common sense level. <laughs> yeah. I know. Well, here's, here's another. Imagine you've got a person who, who's born male. He decides he's a female. Okay. So he comes into the hospital. He's, he's suffering from a heart condition. 
Now, men tend to suffer heart attacks more than women, and women tend to have problems with hypertension and, and racing heartbeat or increased heartbeat. Right. Now, he's going to say, okay, here's this woman in front of me. It's a man, of course, but he's going, okay, I got a woman in front of me. Uh, how do I treat him? Do I treat him as a woman? Uh, no, I treat him as a man because he's got all the physiognomy of a man. He's he's more likely to suffer from a heart attack than a woman would. So it, it's a complete fiction when you get into the medical office. The, the physician's not going to treat this man as a woman because he has a man's body with a man's medical condition. Yeah, I mean, so the facts are there. Wow. Amazing. All right question it's a, another question to follow up on that now that we've opened the door to treating not medical conditions themselves but the the distress or the anxiety that results from the condition what does this mean for the future of medicine well i don't know you know what how much further uh you can go with these kind of things um i really don't know the answer to that question it does seem to um I just don't understand uh, what what will come next. Um, there is the danger that we can just invent our own our own reality, and somehow that's taken as gospel. It's treated as if it were true, and the medical community and the world at large has to has to respect it. I I don't know what's going to happen with that, um, or where it will show up next. Um, I mean, the the world has changed so much over the past. 20 years, just a very right. short period of time. Yep. The things we're seeing today, I think, were pretty much unimaginable 20 years ago. I mean, the idea that somebody who, you know, was uh, thinks he's a soul in the wrong type of body, a woman in a man's body or vice versa, that that would be treated seriously as a proper view of oneself, it's just inconceivable 20 years ago. But so are many other things that have happened right. very swiftly to our society. So I don't know the answer to that one, Joe. I really don't. Maybe we'll have to uh, follow up with some physicians and say, hey, what does the future hold here? Because it is kind of scary. It is. It is. Uh, yeah, know, whenever you lose track of reality, I mean, anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in the article that the American Psychological Association agrees with the American Psychiatric Association in its revision of DSM-5. But are there any behavioral health practitioners out there who have disagreed? And if so, what position have they taken on the issue and what's been the response to them by their colleagues? Well, uh, the whole area of sex reassignment surgery was um, advanced early on by a physician at Johns Hopkins University named Money, M-O-N-E-Y. I'm not, I can't recall his first name, it might have been George, but in any case, Dr. Money was somebody who was receiving patients and uh, subjecting them to sex reassignment surgery as treatment for their psychological difficulties. And uh, he, he uh, his, his whole thing was shut down by Johns Hopkins University as not really producing the results that were appropriate. Uh, so that was the first case of this. Do you know when um, that was? Uh, can, can you tell the audience when that was? I'm not sure. I'm going to say 80s, 70s, 80s, yeah, something just, like that. I thought it was in the 70s or 80s too. Yeah. So, 
So that happened, and it was it was set aside as kind of a fluke and something that wouldn't you know wasn't to be tried again. But suddenly it uh, it now uh, reasserts itself with a vengeance, and it's uh, now it's the standard for treatment, I guess, in these cases. Um, people who oppose it are um, thrown into the kind of social maelstrom that we see around so many of these issues uh, by standing, taking a stand against this and saying it is positively detrimental. You risk your career. You risk uh, the prestige among your colleagues. You, you risk grants. Uh, you know, you risk your whole profession. And the activists will, of course, be on your case, especially if you're prominent in any way. So it is risky to um, to stand up and and uh, go against the you know the the, the the movement in the other direction. So some people do it, um, but they're you know, they they can actually be legislation to penalize such people. Another example of this, not too long ago, and is clearer to see because it's more in retrospect, is the efforts to. Uh, cause homosexuals to reorient themselves to the opposite sex. Many of those efforts have now been banned uh, by law at the urging of activists who consider these to be uh, inappropriate and um, you know, somehow prejudicial. So I wouldn't be surprised if we do start seeing some legislation saying that psychiatrists who take an opposing view on this um, are subject to some kind of legal sanctions. It wouldn't surprise me. Regardless of what the science says. Regardless of what the science says. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Ted, what does the Catholic Church teach about gender dysphoria? Well, here we go back to that uh, body-soul uh, union and the idea that um, you really cannot separate the two. They are one, uh, a substantial union. This goes back to Aristotle and to Thomas Aquinas, it's really a dogmatic teaching of the church held at the highest level, de fide. There's one soul and one body, and they are inseparable. So on that principle, it is impossible for uh, the wrong soul to be in a body. It just it cannot happen. First of all, the soul does not pre-exist the body. It is infused into the body at conception by God, and... Um, immediately united. There's no intermediary. It's, 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 I guess you could say it's not there the moment before. You have sperm and ovum, and then the moment afterwards you have a human soul in a human body. Uh, so they come in together simultaneously. So the only way to say that there could be some kind of error here would be if God himself mistakenly put the wrong soul into the body, which is a theological impossibility. Um, so it's ruled out kind of a priori. It can't happen. Uh, so uh, Pope Francis has been very strong on this. He sees the whole gender ideology agenda as a threat to the family and to normal uh, male-female relations. He's been quite outspoken on it. He talks about it as a kind of colonialism that's being imposed by Western medicine on third world and second world countries. Um, so on this point, he's been very strong and very adamant 
the Catholic Catechism also speaks about how you know man is created male and female. We should accept our bodies as they've been given to us by our Creator. Recognize, uh, you know, we're fused in a very intimate way with our own bodies. Uh, so here again, very uh, firm, decisive teaching on the part of the church with respect to uh, transgenderism, if you can put it that way. Canon law says the same sort of thing, following those deeper principles. Uh, you know, a priest obviously can't become female. A uh, female couldn't change herself to a male and become a priest. All those things are ruled out as impossibilities, and uh, no, no Catholic or non-Catholic should try to change to the opposite sex. Again, intersex conditions are very different. Those are malformations, but here we're talking about perfectly normal anatomy. It should never be changed. It's a mutilation. So just to, to restate the point from a theological and actually from an anthropological perspective, someone can't be in the wrong body. It is uh, a, a metaphysical impossibility. <laughs> yeah, it can't, it can't happen. I mean, really, there are no male or female souls. They're just souls, the principle of life. And for human beings, intellectual life, we have you know, intellect and will. Souls fuse to the body at the moment of conception, but they, the souls don't pre-exist the body. They, they're there created at that point. Uh, and when the soul is infused, it finds itself in a male or a female body, and it lives a male or a female existence. But the soul itself is, you'd say, sexless. There, the generative power, Aquinas would call it, is in the soul rather than the body. The soul enlivens the body. But the generative power, you don't find in any theologian saying, oh, we've got female generative powers in the soul and male generative powers in the soul, <laughs> and they're kind of floating around waiting for the appropriate bodies to be attached to. Uh, it's just a generative power, just as it is an intellectual power. It's not a male and female intellectual power apart from the body. It's only those powers within the body, and the body has its sex stamped on it. So you live your life as one or the other. Hmm. Thanks, Ted. We appreciate it. And um, you've given us a lot to think about today. Thank you, Joe, for having me. All righty. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly, and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.